Good morning and welcome to RHC. You can keep your Bibles right where they're at. That will be our text for this morning. And uh, I'm kind of sad because this is the last chapter in Acts. And uh, it looks like, Lord willing, we'll have just two more sermons um, in the book. And uh, last week we actually tied together chapter 27. We closed it out. And we, we looked and studied and read about how the Apostle Paul was being transported to Rome to testify before Emperor Nero, but the ship he was on ran aground on an island because of an absolutely horrible storm. Uh, the sea began to shred the stern. After they ran aground on a reef, the sea began to just tear the back end of this boat to pieces, and Paul and everyone on board really, literally got off right in the nick of time. Like if this would have been a Hollywood production, it would have been them like jumping off the sides as the boat is just coming to pieces. So uh, it was pretty insane. All 276 people on board made it to the beach safely. And that is where we left off. It's befitting to pray um, as we begin to re-engage the scripture here. Father, open our hearts and minds to the truth. Holy Spirit, move in power. Without your aid and work, this will just be story time. And, and we didn't come here this morning for just story time. And so, Holy Spirit, move in power. Change our hearts. Apply the truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't want to waste any time. I've got a lot to cover. And I've had like three of you say, are you going to take care of the whole rest of the chapter today? Heavens, no. I, I could, I mean, I wrote like too much for the first 16 verses. There's a lot going on here. And so I've got to move fairly quickly, but not too quickly. But I want to pick it up at 28 verse 1. You're there, right? I'll read it again. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Brought safely through. First thing we see there, brought safely through what? Safely through what? The, 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 you know, all the days at sea and the storm and all that? No, 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 no. I, I thought, what, what is he talking about? Brought safely through. He's talking about the breakers. He's talking about the waves. I mean, apparently the boat hit a reef pretty far offshore, and they had to swim or grab onto parts of the boat to make it all the way to shore. Has anyone here ever surfed? Yes. Were you any good at it? Paquito? Well, I went surfing one time, and after that, I bought the entire wardrobe. You know, I, I thought I was a surfer. I went out and spent all this money on a board and all that. And this is when I was in my, my teens. I went surfing one time. I was able the first time to get up on the board, and then I thought I was a professional. And, um, but one of the things that you learn as you go surfing, and it's funny. You go to Santa Cruz, and the waves are like three or four feet tall. It's like, ha, peasant waves, right? You get out there, and you're laying on a board flat, and you have a four-foot wave coming at you. It looks like Mount Everest. And one of the things that you have to learn very quickly if you're going to surf is how to duck dive. Duck diving is to basically, once the wave starts to crest and it's coming up over you, you dive and go through the wave. You don't want to go up on top of the wave because it's going to flip you and beat you up really bad. And Santa Cruz is really shallow and you're going to swallow a lot of stuff. And so picturing my surf days, and there was like three of them, but again, I was a professional, I had all the clothing and everything. I went three times, all of a sudden, you know, I was the guy. They were making movies about me. Um, I, I learned very quickly to duck dive and to avoid waves that way. And so, when, and this, it reminds me of this text, that they were out there 
Um, breakers are basically waves that are rolling in, and when they break, you've seen the whitewash that comes up. Now, if you go into a wave and you get mixed up in that whitewash, you swallow a lot of water. And so I, I, I can envision them trying to ride these breakers in, trying to ride the foam in. And this is what they had to get through, these breakers. Wave after wave, they're getting tossed around. I mean, this must have just been miserable. And I don't know what the pitch of the beach was. I don't know how deep the water was there. Um, but that's kind of irrelevant when you have all these waves crashing all over you. And obviously, they had to navigate through all of this to get to shore. And that's what it means to be brought through. They had to be brought through the breakers, the waves. They had to get through that stuff. And once they got to shore, you know, obviously they were soaked. And this was the beginning of winter. And although it's the Mediterranean, it's, it's kind of tropical, it still gets, I mean, obviously there was a storm happening. Remember, that's why the boat got, ran aground and got destroyed to begin with. And so they, they did all this swimming ashore and, and riding these waves to shore, if you will, all 276. They did it while it was cold, while it was windy. And so when they got on shore, they sort of huddled together. So it must have been just, just miserable. And it, it seems like also once they got to shore, they kind of huddled together. It took them a little bit of time to figure out what island they were on. Back in 2739, it says they did not recognize the land. You know, when daybreak happened and they were in the storm and they were approaching the land and they looked and none of the sailors who were probably experts at navigating and sailing that particular ocean, they, they did not recognize this place. They, they couldn't figure out what it is. And so I think once they huddled together, they began to explore a little bit to try to figure out where they were. And then somebody realized maybe a sailor had been there before because there was a port on this island, on the other side of the island or on the side of it. They realized that they were on what's called Malta. I think it's probably the ship's crew that figured it out because some of these guys were experienced and they'd been there. And Malta is located about 58 miles south of Sicily. You know, that big island off the shore of Italy. It's about seven, Malta's about 17 miles long and about nine miles wide. Translation, 153 square miles. It's not a big island by any means. I mean, you could, you know, walk across it in a day. You could go up and down it in, you know, maybe a day and a half, depending on what the terrain was like. So it wasn't very large. This wasn't a big island. Um, it may have been settled by Phoenician traders many, many centuries before, uh, like three, four hundred BC. So um, Phoenician traders settled it. It looks like, and there may have even been some indigenous people there before that. I don't know. It's hard to say. It's, it was so long ago. Malta meant, or it still means, I guess, in a, in a way, the Phoenician language is dead. But in the Phoenician language, it means a place of refuge. So that's an interesting title for that island. Uh, it seems like maybe the Phoenicians named it Malta during their trading when their empire was, was on top of the world, and this place became a sort of haven, safe haven, if you will, from the winter storms and these things. They dock, we would dock at this place, you know, so that's, that's what they named it. It's, a, a, it's called a place of refuge in the Phoenician language. In 1964, Malta became its own nation or country when it gained its independence from who else? The British. <laughs> they dominated the whole world back in these days or prior to that. And so in 64, it, it, it was um, liberated, I think, not by force, but it became its own thing, kind of like Hong Kong and China. 
Um, today it has about 450,000 citizens, which make, that makes it, the fact that it has, it's such a small island and it has such a massive populace, it makes it the smallest, most populated country in the world. So it's the, like one of the tiniest countries in the world, but it's also one of the most populated. So there's an absolute ton of people on this island. Uh, craziness. Its capital city is called Valletta. That's its port city. Valletta's on the other side of the island. That's where the traders would dock and unload goods or receive goods and all that. So that's where most of the things happened on this island. The life of the island was in Valletta. The place where Paul's ship landed was later named, and it's called that today, St. Paul's Bay. So, you know, that kind of became the title for that bay where his ship crashed and he came ashore. It's now known as St. Paul's Bay. So there's a little history lesson on Malta. Now look at two. The native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. The native people, what are we talking about here? Native is translated uh, barbaros. We get the word barbarian from it. Barbarian basically means uncivilized. That would be the classical sort of general definition of barbarian. When I think of barbarian, I think of the Conan movies and, you know, and, you know, guys walking around with big muscles and swords and all that stuff, right? Conan the barbarian and all that. But in the scripture, barbarian does not mean Conan and Arnold Schwarzenegger. It means basically uncivilized, and even more than that. When we think of um, uncivilized natives, we picture guys running around in loincloths, right? Shooting spider monkeys out of the tree with a blowgun, you know? You know, that's what we think of. But that's not, that was a pretty guy actually rehearsed that. That actually means God is good. No, it doesn't. That's what we think of, though. When we think of native, like, islander person, don't we think of guys running around in loincloths? You land on the island, it's really awkward because everyone's almost naked. You know, they use very primitive weapons. They speak their own native tongue. You know, we think of a native like that. We think of uh, Amazonian rainforest people or Papua New Guinea or something like that. But that's not the right picture here. That's not what's intended. Native does not mean loincloth uncivilized in that way with primitive weapons and they don't speak your native tongue or any of that. It doesn't mean that here at all. In the Greco-Roman world view, any person, every person that did not or who did not read, write, and speak Latin was considered a barbarian, which basically means the entire world outside of the Roman Empire or outside of the Greek Empire, if you will, before the Roman Empire. And so when we see barbarian in the Scripture, and I don't, we see it, I think, what, barbarian, Scythian, there's none of that, you know, we see that in the Scripture. Uh, there's different people groups mentioned in Scripture, but barbarian doesn't, again, it doesn't mean loincloth kind of weird dude with a blowgun. It means someone who was uncivilized in terms of Latin or Greek. And so that's what we have playing out here. The natives on Malta or of Malta did not know Latin, because they had never been what we would call Hellenized, made Greek. They had never been Hellenized. They had never been, like, invaded, if you will, and Hellenized and made to be like the Greeks, taught the language, taught the customs and all that. 
they were still very much OG original on Malta, if you will. And that's essentially why they were called barbarian. Showed us unusual kindness. It's an interesting phrase. Basically means that the natives were exceedingly hospitable. Now, I think this probably took our castaways by surprise, right? I think it did, because in the ancient world, it was pretty normal for island natives to capture, enslave, and to murder foreigners, especially those who crashed on their island. That was the norm. That was normative. You crashed on a strange island, people came out of the woodworks, pretty much took you prisoner, you know, threw you and a couple shrimp on the barbie, right? We get that picture from Hollywood. That's actually accurate. That's what happened in these days. And so for these natives to kind of come out of the woodwork, if you will, and again, they weren't, you know, like the spider monkey kind of guy, but for them to come out and to be like, hey, how's it going? How can we help you? How can we serve you? This was, this was bizarre because that's not how it was in those days. You know, they were, they were pretty volatile. They were not friendly towards outsiders or foreign people. In fact, on some islands, you know, if you crashed on that island, they had never seen anyone else. And so they thought, you know, wow, what's going on with these people? But the opposite happened in our text. They showed unusual kindness. How did they display unusual kindness? Well, it says they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. That's how they showed hospitality. They kindled a fire because, remember, everyone on board, everything they had was wet, probably didn't even have any supplies, and these native people came and showed them this unusual kindness. Built them a fire, they were cold, they were wet. Gave them aid, and I think that's incredible. And I will just simply say God's providence, because that's exactly what's playing out. Look at three. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Wow. Paul went to gather more sticks for the fire, right? We've all done that. Has everyone here been camping? I know the Hanleys go camping every other Friday. They're camping people. Rachel camps at hotels, right? But I've actually gone out and gathered, you know, sticks and stuff like that for the fire. And that's exactly what he did. The fire was going. They needed more fuel for the fire. Paul goes out and he puts together a bundle and then he returns. Uh, But one of the sticks wasn't a stick, (laughs) right? You just grab a whole bunch of stuff. You put it together. You take it over there. You throw it on the fire and you realize very quickly, okay, one of those sticks is moving, And that's what happened here. And what was it? It was a viper. One of the 20 poisonous snakes found in that region, in Israel and the surrounding countries, also known as an adder. Maybe your translation says adder. The ESV, which is amazing, says viper. And what did it do? It fastened on his hand, okay? So fastened on his hand does not mean it coiled itself around his forearm to get warm. It means it bit him and it was hanging off of his hand. That's what it means to fasten here. This was not a python. This was not a constrictor. This was a poisonous snake. And so, you know, he throws the thing in the fire. This thing latches onto him with its teeth to get pulled out of the fire. He pulls his arm out and this puppy is hanging off of his his hand. Now, you must understand that there are, and I, and I, I love science. I, I know Aaron does. He wouldn't have been teaching science as long and animals and all of this stuff. I love this. So I did a little bit more research, but there's different types of snake venom. Okay? There's hematoxin, which affects the blood. There's neurotoxin, which affects your nervous system. There's cytotoxin, which affects your muscles. You know, the venom of vipers or adders is typically hematoxin. It's a hematoxic 
type of poison. Other snakes use different types for various things. Vipers, which rattlesnakes that we have an abundance of here, especially in Don Pedro, they're from the viper family of snake, and they have a hematoxic kind of venom. Hematoxic venom causes rapid coagulation. That's what it's known for. And Gina's like, I know all these terms because I am a nurse. (laughs) Coagulation, also known as clotting. Where were you? You left me hanging. Okay, well, I'm just checking. Just making sure you, you know. Clotting, coagulation, also known as clotting, is the process by which blood changes from what? A liquid to a gel to a solid. When a person is bitten by a snake with hematoxic venom, the blood around the wound begins to coagulate and stop flowing. What does that mean? That means no blood flow to the region that has been bitten. And the thing that's really scary about this is that when you are bitten, your blood is still flowing at that moment. It is carrying that hematoxin to other regions on your body. You could get bit on the hand and lose your circulation here, and all of a sudden you could start having a problem on your ankle because of where your bloodstream is carrying that poison. So obviously, if you get bitten by one of these serpents and it has a hematoxic venom, you're losing blood supply to those regions, which leads to what? Necrosis. Body rot. Have you ever seen imagery online or watched any videos when people get bitten by rattlesnakes and these kinds of things? Seldom do they die, but so often they lose all of the tissue and flesh and everything in those areas because there's no blood flow in that area. You know, unless, of course, they get the anti-venom. And there's still usually, 90% of the time, is there's still some sort of damage. Necrosis is is horrible. It literally just, you lose blood supply and stuff begins to rot. The finger, the limb, whatever it is, begins to die and rot away. Now, obviously, back in these days, there was no anti-venom, none of that technology, none of that good stuff. So, even a viper bite, which isn't as bad as some of the other types of snakes and poison in other snakes, even back in these days, because there wasn't the right treatment or anything, a viper bite was deadly. The person would eventually die. And this was a horrific, horrific death. Your body is rotting away like leprosy, but much more quickly. And the pain, just a horrible, horrible death. In fact, there was a program on on TLC, I think, not too long, where these guys, you know, it was this church thing, and these guys were doing, you've seen people, right, in churches, in these really bizarre churches with snakes, and they're dancing around with the snakes, and, you know, they think that, that passage in Mark applies to them. And so, you know, I think it's Mark 14. They, they get bit, you know, and they'll, they'll survive. Well, one of the stars on that TLC show got bit. And because of his deep conviction that God would heal him, he didn't get treatment and he died. He died the next day. That was a rattlesnake that bit him. And so you can see what would have happened here, how dangerous this was for the Apostle Paul to literally have the snake hanging off of his hand. And, and you must understand, too, that it only takes, it takes a minute, a minuscule, a tiny amount of hematoxic poison to cause massive bodily harm. And again, what happened in the text? The snake was hanging off of his hand, giving it more time to inject more poison, more and more poison. This is craziness here. Look at verse 4. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. 
Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. This is what they began to say amongst each other, to each other. Again, when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand. Okay, what does that say? What does that tell us? It tells us the natives were very, very familiar with that kind of snake. And the result, they may have lost cousin Leo to one of these snakes. They lived with these snakes, just as we do here, or at least those who live in Don Pedro and other places do. I grew up uh, here, but I used to spend many a summer in Red Bluff. Yeah, you know where that is, right? Four hours up north. And between Red Bluff and Redding, there's a place called The Bend. And it's a, it's a beautiful place along the Sacramento River. And there are, there, it, you go out hiking, and it's like there's a rattlesnake every 15 feet. They're just overpopulated up there. It's crazy. I remember as a kid teasing them and smashing them with rocks and stuff. My nephew was, or my uncle was nuts. He'd pick them up and swing them around like a lasso. And I'm just like, dude, you're crazy. He's like, get a little closer. No. He's nuts. He was nuts. But I think that these people were absolutely familiar with this creature. They knew how deadly it was. They knew that, you know, that, man, if you got bit by that, you were toast. They'd seen that before. And they said to one another something really interesting. No doubt this man is a murderer, though. Uh, He has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. The natives assumed that the reason why Paul had been bitten was because he had committed a terrible crime. And they said murder. They knew that if you got bit by the snake, it was a death sentence. So they assumed that because he was going to die, he must have killed somebody. They had this sort of eye-for-an-eye kind of view, worldview of things. Like if you do something wrong here, you're going to get paid that back exactly. That was sort of their worldview, their understanding of things. Paraphrased, he may have escaped the sea, but justice caught up with him now. That's what they were saying. They had a what comes around goes around, a kind of reap and sow view of things. To them, the snake bite, the viper bite was God's punishment for past sins, for some kind of past sin. And it reminds me of Job and his three friends. That's what I was reminded of as I was studying this, this kind of judgment and attitude they took, you know, this assumption they made. It totally reminded me of Job and his friends. You know, they, Job suffered unimaginable calamity, you know, the kind of which I'm not sure that any of us in this room would be able to endure. Seriously. Well, yeah, you can. Through Christ, all things are possible. Well, yeah, yeah. Who strengthens, who strengthens me? I, you know, and this guy went through a lot, man. He lost everything. Almost everything. He lost everything but the nagging wife. Right? He lost his children. He lost his possessions. He lost his health. He didn't lose his wife, who was critical with him and wanted him to denounce God. But he basically lost everything, everything of meaning to him. And Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar assumed that the reason why he experienced this great calamity and lost it all was because he had to have sinned against God, and this was God's judgment and punishment on him. That's what they assumed. They tried to convince him of this. Much like how the devil tries to convince us that we've just sinned, and when we analyze our life right there in that moment, we realize, I did not sin. You're bringing a false allegation against me. These guys did everything they could to try to convince Job that he had sinned and done something wrong, and that's why you're suffering. That's why you're going through this. They literally hounded him day and night. 
This guy had lost it all. Instead of these friends coming to him saying, man, let us be here for you. Let us give you the ministry of presence. Let us pray for you and love you and care for you and weep with you. Put on sackcloth with you. They pounded him saying, you must have sinned and that's why. Repent, Job, and everything will return to you as it was. But Job had not sinned against God, for he was a righteous man. The book of Job opens with that. He had done nothing wrong. The natives in our text were similar to Job's friends. They attributed Paul's calamity to past sin, and yet they knew nothing about him. They were clueless about his life, clueless about his background, clueless about his behavior, clueless about his faith, clueless about his ministry, clueless about his apostolic credentials. They knew nothing about him. One thing they knew about him is that he could gather sticks. That's all they knew about him. Fortunately, this kind of what comes around goes around, reap and sow if you do this this will happen to you sort of mentality, line of thinking is very prevalent among believers and unbelievers today, right? It's almost like the, the motto is if you do good things, you'll receive good things. And if you do bad things, you'll receive bad things. The Bible does affirm that God can and so often does return good to those who do good and vice versa. But it does not guarantee that that will always be the case. There's nothing in Scripture that says if you do good, that's all you'll ever get in return, or vice versa. Job, examples, Job was a good man who did, did he did good deeds, and yet he suffered exponentially. The Roman Empire, on the opposite side of that, the Roman Empire was wicked and ungodly from its birth and yet it prospered and ruled the world for a thousand years. Right? Paul was an apostle who spread the gospel like no one else in history, and yet he got bit by a viper, man. Wait a minute. I'm doing the math, and this doesn't line up. Paul didn't do anything wrong, and he got bit by a viper. Job didn't do anything wrong, and he suffered immense calamity. The Roman Empire was horrible. You see how it works? If you do good things, you'll receive good things. And if you do bad things, you'll receive bad things. That's not always the case. You cannot base your life upon that line of thinking. We must remember something so absolutely important and biblical, and that is that God causes the rain to fall on who? The just and the unjust. In other words, he blesses the righteous, and guess what? I hate to say it, but he blesses the unrighteous. And that makes me cringe to think that. And then I need to look back at my life and spending 33 years or 32 years or 31 years of life on this earth not knowing Christ, not obeying Him, not glorifying Him, not pleasing Him. I was blessed immensely by God during that time. I had health, I had money, I have a wife, I had children, I had everything that a man would want in life, despite the fact that I was completely unrighteous. God causes the rain to fall on the just, the unjust. He blesses the righteous and the unrighteous. Doesn't mean he'll, it'll stay that way, but I'm going to tell you right now, it's his prerogative to do so. And it's all part of his plan 
He has ordained it to be this way, to cause the rain to fall on both, to bless both according to his plan. So it's never wise to assume that the reason why a person is prospering or suffering is because God is either rewarding their good deeds or punishing their bad deeds. The fact of the matter is, we cannot read people's hearts, and we certainly cannot read the mind of our infinite God, can we? For His thoughts are not our thoughts, and His ways are not our ways. He's given us the Scripture. We can get a sense for what He's about and what He likes and what He honors and what He judges and what He punishes, but for the most part, I can't sit here and pretend to be able to figure out the mind of God on any given thing or why something's happening with someone. All I can do is look at the Scripture and try to figure that out. And that's difficult because of my flesh at times. But we don't know what's in the heart of a man. We can look at their actions and say, I pretty much know what he's about. Do you? Because when I analyze myself, and I'm a pastor, and I'm a Christian, and I'm all of that, plus a bag of chips. But when I analyze my own heart, I realize my heart is so often more pagan than Christian. Well, Christians just don't do those things anymore. Yes, they do. For his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways. So don't follow this line of thinking. Don't assume stuff about others and be quick to rush to judgment I have said so often, this president is ungodly. God is going to take care of him. What I should say is God put him in place because he's exactly what the people want. He's judgment against this nation. Now, I have to work on this really big time because I am like a mathematician. And it's weird because I was really terrible in math during school. I'm always trying to put two and two together. I'm always trying to figure out why this happened to this person or to me or to someone else. And I'm a professional at passing judgment. And I see things happening to people and I so often whisper under my voice, they're getting what's coming to them. They're getting what they should. They've been doing this and now it's, it's, it's coming home to roost. This is why this is happening to them. How often have you thought that about someone I do it pretty regularly, and instead of speculating and making judgments and wasting time, I should pray for people. You should pray for people. Now look at five. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Now most people bitten by poisonous snakes panic. I know I would. I'd be running around screaming like a girly. They freak out, but not Paul. He felt the bite, saw the snake, and calmly shook it off into the fire. Paul was firmly trusting in the sovereign plan of God. He knew that he would make it to Rome just as Jesus had promised. Therefore, the snake bite didn't faze him. Swimming through breakers to shore did not faze him. Jumping overboard into violent waters did not faze him. Hitting a reef at probably 15 knots per hour did not faze him. 14 days aboard a rickety boat on a perilous sea did not faze him. Two years in a Caesarean jail did not faze him. Three trials in Caesarea did not faze him. Being locked up in Jerusalem did not faze him. Paul was steadfast and immovable. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he exhorted the Corinthians to follow his example. Why? Because he... He was firmly planted on the promises of God. Believed them with all his might. 
unfazed by a viper bite. It's incredible. Now, skeptics say that Paul experienced a dry bite here. That's what they say. A dry bite is a bite by a venomous snake in which no venom is released. Dry bites can occur from all venomous snakes, but their frequency varies from species to species. It's said that about 20% of viper bites are dry. Now, we must realize that most of these bites are faster than your eye can even catch. You've been bit. Again, how was Paul bitten? The snake latched onto his hand and kept doing its business, driving in that venom. There's just no way, there's no way that this was a dry bite. Dry bites statistically do occur when the snake bite is so rapid the eye can't catch it. This snake latched onto his hand, he had to shake it off. And so I don't know how people come up with the, well, they don't believe in the supernatural, that's what it is. That's how they come up with this stuff. There's a lot of Sadducees in the church, and that's sad, you see? (laughs) Stupid. This thing latched onto his hand. It's highly improbable that the bite was dry. On the contrary, what we're actually seeing in the text is a miracle. What a concept, huh? Oh, those don't exist. Yes, they do. This was a miracle, and there was a purpose for it, as we will soon see. Look at 6. They were waiting for him to swell up. Or suddenly fall dead. <laughs> they, had, they knew. Fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. <laughs> they were waiting for him to swell up and suddenly fall down. As I said earlier, they were experienced with this kind of snake and its bite. Who were the they? The natives. They saw him get bit. They knew that it's only a matter of time before his hand explodes like a balloon and that he drops foaming at the mouth. They had experience. They'd seen people die to this. And it's weird. I wonder if this particular moment was awkward for Paul. Because the natives were like staring at him, watching him, and waiting to see if something would happen. Can you imagine these people? You don't know them. And you get bit by a snake, and you're going about your business, warming yourself by a fire, and there's a whole bunch of people by you going, watching you waiting to see if something's going to happen. This had to be awkward. It had to be weird. And after some time passed, Paul's condition did not worsen. It says, because they waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. (laughs) Paul, in their eyes, went from murderer to god. (laughs) I suspect that he was offended by this. I don't know about you, but if something happened to me and I suffered some kind of calamity, and if people were speculating, that's pretty troubling as it is, but if they kept saying, he probably murdered somebody and that's why this is happening, that would be somewhat offensive. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't done anything. And I think Paul might have been frustrated with that. But he was way more frustrated and frightened. He would have, been, he would have preferred to have been called a murderer than to be called a god. This, this had to be troubling for him. This had to be offensive. Calvin wrote, if Paul could choose one or the other, it would be better to be called a murderer than a god. Surely Paul would rather have wished to be condemned, not only of one crime, but also to have sustained all shame and to have been thrust down into the deep pit of hell than to take to himself or to take for himself the glory of God. 
Now, Paul would not, he would have been probably offended by being called a murderer if he understood what they were saying. It was translated, I don't know. But I can tell you and I can assure you that he would have been upset and frustrated and offended by being called a God because Paul was the kind of man that never, ever wanted to be associated with such a high title, such a lofty position. Paul was one of the most humble men in all of Scripture. And this isn't the first time this happened. In Lystra, Paul miraculously healed a crippled man, and the people of the city began to call him and Barnabas gods, right? Paul is Hermes, and, and Barnabas is Zeus. Paul and Barnabas expressed their disgust by tearing their cloaks. That's the ultimate way to show that you are disgusted by what someone has said, is to tear your garment. And then not only did they do that, but they began to rebuke the men, saying, we are not Gods, we're normal men. We're regular men like you. They ran around the town saying, don't call us gods. And if you go back and read that amazing episode, you will see. And where is it? Acts 14. You will see that it resulted in Paul being almost killed. The people didn't like the fact that Paul was preaching a gospel and rejecting this, de you know, this deified position. They wanted him to be their god. And Paul was like, under no circumstances... He'd rather been dead. They almost stoned him to death. Now let's talk about the purpose of the snake bite miracle. As with all miracles in the New Testament, the purpose of the snake bite miracle was to affirm Paul's apostolic authority as God's appointed representative and spokesperson. That's the purpose for every miracle in the New Testament. It's to establish the authority of the one who performs it, the authority that has been given ultimately by God. As God worked miracles through the apostles, they would then point to God as the prophetic orchestrator of the miracle and the author of the gospel. When the snakebite miracle happened, the natives responded so quickly, faster than Paul could explain, right? It's like he got bit, he didn't die, he's a god! He didn't have a chance to describe the miracle or to define that or to do anything. They immediately, they assumed that he was a murderer. They saw that he survived. Then they assumed that he was a god. There was no time in there for Paul to define what had just happened. It was just too quick. But it was okay. Because Paul was planning to spend time with these people, to disciple them. He was planning to minister to them through more miracles and through the preaching of the gospel. We might say that Paul was planning to prove to them that he was not a God and that Jesus Christ is God and the only Savior of the world. That's what we might be able to say about what's going to happen here, his ministry to these people. Well, I'll show them. I'll show them the power of God. God will continue to anoint me or to continue to work miracles through me, and I'll, I'll, tie that to, I'll tie that to God, and I'll tie that to Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is your only hope. That's what Paul set out to do. Look at 7. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, Publius. I think Spencer said it better than I could. Publius, I guess we'll say. And I looked it up and it, it, in the Greek, and it, it didn't sound anything like it's spelled. And so I figured I'd just try not to confuse you. Publius. Publius. Who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days at seven. Not far from St. Paul's Bay, where they landed, where they crashed. 
There were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius. Publius. Luke referred to this area as the neighborhood. That's interesting. I think he did that because this was where people lived in close proximity to one another. Publius is not a Phoenician name. It is Roman, which means that he was not one of the original indigenous people. He was not a native, if you will. He was probably a Roman citizen, some type of Roman official who had been planted, placed, something like that, on Malta as a governor, as a mayor, as an overseer, something like that, as a lord with a smaller L. Publius was considered the chief man of the island. Chief is translated protos in Greek, which means first, it means before, it means prominent, it means most important. Chief, when we think of a chief here, it points to, we want to think of someone who's wealthy, someone who has financial power, someone who has a high standing in society. We might say that Publius was the wealthiest, most powerful guy on the island. We might say that he was the Donald Trump of Malta. That's what he was. And it says that he was a generous host, right? Who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. I love that. Who received us. He welcomed all 276 people and took care of them for three days. Man, that's a lot of food. That's a lot of resources going out. It's an all-inclusive statement, too. 276 people. Some of these people in that 276-person group were prisoners, right? Were social outcasts, were criminals. They were on their way to Rome to either be used as sport in the Roman games or to be executed or to be thrown in prison because of stuff they had done in some of these other provinces. And, and yet, this hospitality shown by the natives and Publius, it was expressed not just to a certain group in the 276, but the entire group, even the criminals, even the outcasts. That's amazing to me. Three days of feeding them and clothing, and, and I don't know if he clothed them, but three days of feeding, I know that, and three days of probably providing resource and shelter and the basic things that they needed. It's not by happenstance that God introduces this 276-person group to the wealthiest man on island, the one who has the financial power to care for them, more particularly Paul. Again, providence. Look at verses 8 and 9. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island, everyone else on the island um, who had diseases also came and were cured. This is incredible what's playing out here. While... At his house, at Publius's house, Paul discovered that his dad was very, very sick. He had fever and dysentery. Fever, I think it's safe to say that everyone in this room has had a fever, right? Who hasn't had a fever in here? 
it's probably impossible. Uh, several years ago, I got pneumonia. It's definitely the sickest I've ever been in my life. And um, it wasn't the kind, well, all pneumonia is deadly, but there's, I don't know, bacterial and there's other types, viral and bi- bacterial. One of them can really kill you. The one I had wasn't that one, but it, it made me absolutely miserable. And I'll tell you this, I was sick with pneumonia. It started out as kind of a cold and, and then it kind of became the flu and then it, you know, progressed into full-blown pneumonia. And, and that's basically an infection in your lungs that just will not go away on its own. And I was sick for, I think, maybe six weeks a long time. It seemed like an eternity. And the thing that was so horrible about it, I would say, was that I had like a 103 degree fever every day for a month and a half. The only thing that I could do about the fever was manage it and try to keep it from, from, you know, from going too high. It was just, if I didn't take Tylenol or Advil or something to, to, you know, to help minimize it, I think I probably would have just exploded. You know, pulsar, you know, because it always ran at about 101 with medicine. Without it, it would just keep climbing and climbing and climbing. I was, I, I went to the doctor, I don't know how many times. It was, it was a miserable, miserable time. It was horrible. And, you know, every time you, you, you'd be, you know, you'd be freezing to death when your fever was at its high point. And then you take Tylenol and then you'd, you'd go into the shakes and shivers and feel like, you know, it's 90 in the house and you'd feel like you're in the Arctic. It was terrible. And this man had that. He had, he I don't know if he, he had pneumonia, but he had a fever. This fever wouldn't leave him. And, and, it, and it's believed that because it was prevalent on Malta, that what they drank on Malta was goat's milk. And a lot of times this particular virus or bacteria would be in the goat's milk and it would settle in your gut and then lead to infection and fever. That's prevalent on Malta. Even today, that's an issue with goats there goat milk. And so that's probably how he contracted this fever. But that's not all that he had. He also had dysentery. Dysentery is an infection in the lower bowels. And because we're one hour away from lunch, I won't go into all of its details, but I can assure you that it is horrific. It is terrible. It's horrible. It's devastating. It's debilitating. There's blood and all this. It's just hor- I'm going into details. Stop. Yeah, it's bad. It's really, really bad. And this poor guy has fever and he has dysentery. He's got to be absolutely miserable. He probably feels like he's going to die. And he may have died if he continued on the trajectory that he was on. But the text says that Paul went into him to his sickbed, right? And it says he prayed over him, and it says he put his hands on him, right? I remember one time, uh, I used to work with Anson over at Big Valley, and he was hilarious. As pastors there, you'd get these sick calls, and you'd have to like drop everything and go to the hospital and pray for someone, and uh, Anson was a total germaphobe, and so he'd be like standing at the, in the doorway going, Father, I pray that you'd heal them, I pray that you, he would not even go near the bed. He would tell me, oh, i got to go to Memorial and pray for someone who has that MRSA. Remember MRSA, how that was going around real bad? And it was like really, you could get that really bad, and it was deadly, you know? And so he'd be like, dude, I was like praying in the room next door. I'm like, you are terrible. You should not be a pastor. You should go in there and lay, you should lay next to them. <laughs> what? I'm not going to get MRSA, you know? I'm not going to get Marsha, you know? It's like, no, it's MRSA. 
That's how he was. You know, I'd go in there and I'd be like, oh, Father, heal them. You know, I'd go in with oil and they'd be like, what are you going to do, make eggs? You know, it's just, I just didn't, hey, if I get sick, I get sick. But Paul did that here. He went in and he ministered to this guy, not just vocally, but physically touching him, bringing comfort, right? The touch when you're sick. A nurse brings comfort when they, they hold a hand when somebody is suffering. And when a relative does that to you when you're suffering, he did that. He, he, he comforted him, and then he prayed over him. And then he, I would say God did it. God healed the man through him, performed a miracle on him as well. When the natives heard about it, they ran and collected all the, their sick people, loved ones and friends and neighbors, and brought them to Paul, and the Lord healed them too, right? Sounds kind of like the Apostle Peter in early Acts. People were even trying to get into his shadow to get healed. Look at 10 through 11. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. After spending the winter. Remember, there was that time, if you were here a few weeks ago, I talked about it, there was a time where you did not sail on the Mediterranean. There was, you know, like a four or five month period when you did not because you couldn't see, you couldn't navigate, the cloud cover and all that. It was very dangerous. It was the winter time essentially. And so they, they spent like three months on the island during winter time. And then they all boarded that 276 they boarded an Alexandrian trade ship which featured the faces of two mythological gods which had been fastened to the bow. I think that's how it was. You know, you've seen the movies where they've got this ship and they've got this figurehead at the front of it at the point, and they had this figurehead that had two heads on it. They were Castor and Pollux. I like the fact that Spencer's translation had the names of them because the ESD, ESV doesn't have the names. It just says the figureheads. Who were Castor and Pollux? They were this alleged, again, mythological gods, sons of Zeus, or the divine protectors of sailors that went to sea. Uh, it's an interesting thing. that You would see these two figureheads, Castor and Pollux, you would see them on a lot of ships back then because they were thought that if you had those at the bow fastened there, they would protect you as you sailed through the Mediterranean or wherever it is you were going. Sounded real good though, right? And it's interesting that Paul still boarded the ship, even though it was obviously a pagan ship with false gods attached to it. This, too, did not faze Paul, because Paul understood that these were nothing but mere idols, that they had no significant, significance to him, no spiritual implication or meaning. Paul was, we saw as he went into Athens, he was completely saddened by the idolatry there. He was frustrated with it that all these people had been misled by these false gods, that they were worshiping all this stuff that couldn't help them. That was his attitude towards idolatry and these things. He didn't look at the boat like many Christians wouldn't say, I can't go on that boat because it's got those two things on it. Paul did not do that. And we need to be cognizant of that too, that we live in a fallen world where idolatry is rampant and, and, and we're called to minister to be ministers in this world, and idolatry is everywhere, and it's rampant. The entire world is like Athens, is it not? And so we can't, you know, be reclusive and retract and, and, and hide and try to, try to um, shield ourselves or to try to preserve ourselves apart from this world. 
God has given us quite the opposite command. He hasn't said be reclusive and hide from it. Go out into it is what he has said and make disciples in every nation. And so Paul walks up and he sees this ship and it was probably magnificent and he sees these idols and it, it doesn't faze him. He's not worried about the implications towards him because he's firmly rooted in Jesus Christ who is the one true and living God. He doesn't say, I can't go on this boat. It's an interesting point. It says, before setting sail, the natives honored them greatly. How did they do it? In multiple ways, but one thing that's interesting is that they brought supplies to the 276 before they set sail. They brought them food and these things that they would need for the rest of the journey. That's just incredible to me. You know, as Christians, we should be as hospitable as they were, even more. Have you noticed that, the hospitality of these native folks? That should, and it did for me, bring just a little bit of sting to us if we analyze our lives and realize that we're really not all that hospitable, that we're really not inviting people into our life and into our places where we are, work, live, and, and, to, and to care for them and to feed them and to clothe them, whatever it is that we're going to do when we're being hospitable. It brings a little sting to see that these people were a pagan culture, and yet they were so hospitable and then when we think about our own lives, we say to ourselves, I'm not really all that hospitable. I'm not really that active and proactive in caring for people or trying to provide for people. I felt a little sting there. And I, I, I sense that God wants me to be involved in another community group. We were talking with the Tates about it the other night. And that's one way to express hospitality to people. It's a good way to do it. I mean, they did that. That's the kind of people they were. We need to follow their example. We need to go above and beyond what they did. We've got all the more reason to, grace of Christ. Look at verses 12 through 16. We're getting close here. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to, uh, ooh, man, that's a tough one, Puteole, Puteole. Uh, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we also, or so we came to Rome, and then it says in 15, and the brothers there, when, we, when they had heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him, wrapping it up. They sailed 100 miles from, you know, from Malta. They sailed 100 miles north to Syracuse, Sicily. They stayed there for three days. Tradition says that Paul planted a church there during his stay. That's amazing. It doesn't surprise me at all with the way that he's been and what we've seen. After that, they sailed to Regium, which is located on the southern tip of the Italian peninsula. They're now over on the continent. They waited there one day until a south wind sprang up. You know, they were trying to just sail on through, but the wind was against them, and so they docked at Regium and waited for the wind to change and to blow upward so they could go up. From there, they sailed north to Pateli, which was the most important commercial port in Italy at that time. Rome is not a coastal city. Most of you know that. It's 40 miles inland. Pateli was its port in these days. That's where all of the goods that were to go to Rome arrived and landed and were distributed up the highway to Rome. While there in uh, Patele, Paul found some brothers, that's believers, that's translated believers, Delphos, uh, brothers believers, and stayed with them for seven days. 
always on mission, always ministering to people when he had an opportunity, always encouraging and building up the church is what Paul did. From there, they traveled by land along the Appian Way, 150 miles northeast to Rome. During that leg of the journey, brothers from the Forum of Appius and three taverns heard about Paul's arrival. They heard that he was in country. They heard that he was on the mainland. And uh, they came to him. They came to greet him. That's amazing. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. You know, he realized that his destiny was about to be fulfilled, I think, is what happened. It all kind of began to, to, to come into view here, right? He was about to enter the most important city in the Gentile world. Why? To preach the gospel. And, and you must know that we have read over and over that it says that he was to testify before Caesar. But what that really means is preach the gospel in Rome. So that's interchangeable. You can look at it either way. He may or may not have preached the gospel before Caesar. But the point is, is that he would proclaim the gospel in Caesar's immediate territory. That's what it actually means in the original. So, man, he was right on the precipice of fulfilling his destiny. The last several years of his mission, he's, he's been focused on getting to Rome, and then that was affirmed again in Jerusalem. And, 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 and it, it's just, it's amazing and then it was affirmed again a little later, and, and it's like, you're going to get there, you're going to get there, you're going to get there. And he sees, these, he sees these brothers walk up, and he realizes, I'm at the threshold, baby. It's going to happen. He's thrilled. He's so very thankful to God for making good on his promise to bring him to Rome. That's what's happening here. When they entered the city, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. Again, God's providence. Who gives a prisoner their own place with just a simple guard to watch him? God does. That's the text. Closing. One of the things that really stands out in this passage is that Malta was more than a refuge from a perilous sea, from the storm. It was a mission field. God had strategically placed Paul on that island so that he could make disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, our first inclination is to think that it was a place of refuge, it was a place of safety, they would have died if they hadn't got there, so that's the meaning of Malta. No, 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 no. That's secondary to the bigger missional plan of God here. God didn't want to bring Paul just to Malta to be safe from a storm, but to do missional work, to be a missionary there on Malta. And it reminds me that every believer has been strategically placed for that same purpose. You remember what our little subtitle was for this series? I mean, we've always called it Acts, but back during the first year of this series, we called it, You Will Be My Witnesses. That is the theme of this book. And that was the theme of Paul's life. A shipwrecks. He goes on to shore. He doesn't sit there for a minute until he can get to... Point B, he does ministry. He does missional work for three months everywhere this man went. He gets across over onto the Italian peninsula and immediately meets with believers for seven days and starts ministering to them and does it all the way as he's traveling 150 miles. Mission, 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 mission is the theme of Acts. You will be my witnesses. Isn't that true? Paul's, well, God's strategic move to help Paul there just reminds me of how he's strategically 
purposed, planted and purposed all of us. You know, I didn't come to Modesto because my parents wanted to live here. No one would do that in their right mind. Back in that day, it was a pretty amazing place. And, 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 and Satan has had 35 years since I've got here to really foul this place up. I didn't come here. I, my, my, I didn't move here because my parents wanted to live here. That's what I thought. That's what I spent most of my life thinking. But actually, God brought me here to raise me up, to make disciples of Jesus Christ here. That's why I live in Modesto. I didn't take a part-time job at Car Audio Outlaws because I needed money. Certainly what I thought at first. But actually, God put me there so that I could make disciples of Jesus Christ right there in that place. I didn't plant RHC because, and there's other men that were involved in that, I would say we didn't plant RHC, and all of you, most of you were involved in that, we didn't plant RHC because we, for the purpose of just, that we became disenfranchised with big church politics and programming, that certainly was a motivator for me to my own fault. God put me here. He put you here that we could make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we meet. That's why we do what we do, people. Mission, 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 mission. Christian, you must understand that God has done the same thing with you that he did with Paul, strategically placed you. You have been strategically placed as a missionary for Christ, for Jesus Christ. I'm challenging myself to think and live this way each day because I don't. It's not my default. My default is care for yourself first and care for everyone else in your immediate family and, and do all these other things. Go to work and get a paycheck. Go to work and get a paycheck. Go to work and get a paycheck. Go to RHC and preach a sermon. Do what you're supposed to do. Then go back and just kind of enjoy the rest of your day. And, and, you know, and then build that back up. And Mission, mission, mission. I'm challenging myself to think in terms of mission. To have a disposition of mission. And I want to challenge you to do the same thing. I want to leave you with an incredible quote and and really it's an admonition i think it's also a strong warning from the late great charles spurgeon and then a question he said every christian is either a missionary or an imposter missionary or imposter that's it my question to you is this, Christian, have you been living as a missionary or as an imposter? Both. Boy, I'm a man on missional fire when I'm at RHC, but outside of here, I'm just a man. And so are you. I don't want to be an imposter. It's, it's like Christian and missionary are synonymous. They are synonymous. They're the same thing. 
And if we're not living a missional life where we're constantly trying to reach people and minister to people on Christ's behalf, trying to make disciples, we're just posing as a Christian. We're not living out our true identity. This guy got me excited last week or the week before when he said, you know, Phil, I've been working a lot with Mike Boyd and and doing this and that, and, and I'm constantly talking about Jesus with people I cross paths with. That's missional. Praise God. You don't want to be an imposter, do you? Let's pray. Father, as we enter into this time of communion, Lord, I pray that you would immediately remind us of what those elements represent, our freedom in Christ, the remission of our sin, the broken body of Jesus, the spilt blood, but also remind us in this moment that we are missionaries, strategically placed. Lord, I pray that you would use this communion time to commission us again, to revitalize us, to renew us with a spirit and attitude and disposition of mission. Do that, Christ, that we may live with boldness, preaching Christ to all, making disciples everywhere, loving people, showing them Jesus, testifying to the hope that we have in Christ. If we haven't been doing that, Lord, may we spend just a few moments confessing our sin and then being revitalized in you as we take those elements. We give you this time and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Help yourselves.